Welcome to the sermon podcast from Free School Court Church in Bridgend. This podcast features sermons from the Bible, which are recorded at our Sunday services each week. To find out more, please visit our website, freeschoolcourt.org.uk, or find us on social media. Well, let's turn our attention to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Over the, couple of, uh, over the last couple of years, the issue of access has been one which suddenly shot to the forefront of our minds, didn't it? There was a time when we were told to stay in our houses and only leave on essential business. We didn't know um, exactly where and when we were allowed to go to different places. And um, even then we got to a stage, didn't we, where you were supposed to take a test before going into... Um, public places. It's half term now in Wales and so lots of people will be going off on their holidays and to go to a lot of different places now around the world you have to do lots of tests before you can go there. And even before Covid access was something which we were familiar with wasn't it? If you wanted to go to a big event you'd have to get a ticket or they wouldn't let you in. And then if you paid a lot of money you might even be able to get an access all areas pass which would let you go Um, even further. Some people have a right of access to places because of the family that they belong to. Can't imagine that the Queen would get in trouble for wandering around Buckingham Palace because of who she is. That's where she belongs. But if one of us was to find ourselves wandering around there, then a few questions would probably be asked, wouldn't they? Now at the time of David, when this psalm was written, Psalm 24, There was a feeling amongst some of the Israelites that they, as God's chosen people, had what it took to come into God's presence. That being God's chosen people on its own was enough for them. That they were special because they were close to God. They had on their doorstep God's holy mountain. They had the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt in a special way. Who they were and where they lived was enough for them to draw close to God. It's worth saying at this point that through the scriptures, through the Bible, there is a link between uh, the garden on the mountain, the Garden of Eden, then Mount Sinai or Horeb, the mountain of God in um, Genesis and Exodus, and then Mount Zion, and then of course the heavenly mountain, which is to come, the new heavens and the new earth. And all of these things point to the dwelling place or the presence of God. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this evening. This psalm asks the question, who has access to God? That's the main question, the main thrust of this psalm. Who has access to God? Verse 3, who can ascend his hill? Who can stand in his holy place? In other words, who can come to God? Who can come into his presence? Before even that, verse 3, we have verses 1 and 2 of this psalm. This psalm starts with a declaration of the ownership of God over all of creation. We see verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The earth in all its fullness, the whole globe belongs to God. And not just the land, but the people who live in it. All people that on earth do dwell, all of them belong to God. Why? 
Well, verse 2 answers that question as well, because God founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. God has claim over the whole earth and all the people who live on it because he made them. He formed the earth and he gave the people who live on the earth life. He brought them into being. He has claim over every inch of creation and every person who lives in it because he is the one who breathed life into them, who sustains them day by day, who sustained David and the other Israelites all those years ago, who sustain each and every one of us even this evening, giving us breath, giving us our next breath and the next beat of our heart. The whole earth, all the people belong to him. Even here in verses 1 and 2, we have this hint that family, that heritage, that geographical location are not going to cut it when it comes to drawing near to God. It was good to be an Israelite and to belong to God's special people, but it wasn't enough on its own to come into God's presence. How the Israelites should have known that day by day, how difficult it was for them to enter the presence of God. They had all of these processes, didn't they? Sacrifices and systems of washing, the priesthood, all of these things which showed them each and every day how they were unlike God. It wasn't enough to be born to a certain family or to live in a certain place. And then this question is asked again, verse 3. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And the question is immediately answered for us, isn't it? Verse 4. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. There are certain countries around the world where if you want to go there, you can't just book a plane ticket and fly over. Well, you could, but you probably wouldn't make it very far. You have to apply and get a visa to go there, to to be allowed access into that country. And there are some countries where it's difficult to get a visa. They check all kinds of things about you. And there are some people who aren't able to get a visa because of things that they've done in the past. Unless they've acted in a certain way, they can't get into that country. And here we see, verse 4, that it's only those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who have not trusted in idols or sworn by a false god. It's only those who can come into the presence of God. We see here clean hands and a pure heart. Shows us that there's um, two things here at work. Clean hands, it's about action. It's about the things that we've done. If we're out working in our gardens, we come back and our hands are dirty, aren't they? Because we've been doing work. Clean hands, we have to have acted acted rightly to come into the presence of God. And more than that, we need a pure heart. Action isn't enough, but intention and even affection are important as well. We have to have good intentions and we have to have not trusted in idols and sworn by false gods, as it says there. I think we're prone, aren't we, to um, those of us who have been Christians, maybe for a while, when we read the Bible, we're prone to think that in the Old Testament, it was action that mattered. As long as the people in the Old Testament did what was right, and they usually didn't, then they would be fine. If they kept the law outwardly, then God would be happy with them. That's what it meant to be right with God, was to do what he said. That's how you were right with God. But really, that was the Pharisees' mistake, wasn't it? 
The Pharisees believed that if they did what was right, the letter of the law, if they acted outwardly in a way that was right, then God would be happy with them. All would be okay. They thought because of who they were, they were sorted. They were thought because of what they did, they would be sorted. And then we're prone to think, aren't we, that Jesus came along and said, no, actually, the Old Testament was kind of wrong. The Pharisees were kind of wrong. It was about the heart. We see the Sermon on the Mount, don't we, and think, oh, that's what it's actually like. Jesus came and turned the world upside down through the Sermon on the Mount and showed us that it was our hearts and our thoughts that needed to change as well. But we see here, don't we, the content of the Sermon on the Mount right here in Psalm 24, that it's always been about clean hands and a pure heart. It's been about trusting not in idols or swearing by false gods, but about seeking the face of God. What is verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 24? But an echo or a foreshadow of Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. We see here, don't we, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Verse 5, they will receive blessing from the Lord. Then Jesus comes and preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he say? Blessed are the pure in heart, Matthew 5, verse 8, for they shall see God. We have it right here in Psalm 24. It's always been about our hearts flowing out to our actions. That's how we can come and dwell in the presence of God. David shows us that being right with God is always something which flows from the heart, from worship and trust, and trusting not in idols or swearing by false gods, but trusting in the true and living God. Verse 4, the word for idol there could be translated as emptiness. And does not trust in emptiness, but trust instead in the living God. We need to see and to understand that the law in the Old Testament was not given that the people might earn a right relationship with God, but rather that those who had been delivered by God might flourish, might be blessed, and might live long in the land. Remember the Ten Commandments. How do they start? Well, they start with God reminding them who he is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Israel. And then the law is given. And then what does Moses say time and time again? Keep these words. These are the words of life. The words that you might live long in the land and do well. But we ask the question, how can people come into right relationship with God when it requires a pure heart? When it requires clean hands and this trust how does that work how can we do that it's not enough to have a decent heart and mostly clean hands we say that about people sometimes don't we we say oh he's got a good heart she's got a good heart which usually we follow up with some kind of criticism of them it's usually a, an excuse to to then criticize someone they are oh, they mean well but they don't quite work out in practice it's not enough to have a good heart It's not enough to have mostly clean hands. We're told here, in no uncertain terms, that we need to have clean hands and a pure heart to stand in the presence of God. When we hear the words of the psalm there in um, verse 4, we should feel ourselves to fall short. We should read those words and think, I'm not like that. I um, I don't measure up to that. And we shouldn't fall into the mistake of thinking that when David wrote those words, he thought that he made it. We heard from Psalm 51 last week, didn't we? David knew that he was a failure. If you flick over the page, 
Let's look at the first couple of verses of Psalm 32. David there says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. David didn't think that he was perfect, and yet he wrote that we need pure hands, pure, a clean hands and a pure heart to stand in the presence of God. So where was David's hope? Where is our hope as we hear this this evening? We see, don't we, in verse 5, that the one who does have pure hands, pure, uh, pure heart, clean hands, will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their saviour. This person will be blessed of God and they will receive vindication, or it might say in your version, righteousness. Vindication, they'll be declared righteous by God. The person of whom this psalm talks will be vindicated by God their saviour, by the God of their salvation. They will be declared righteous. Imagine that you have got a visa to one of those countries that requires a visa, and then when you're out there, someone says that you shouldn't have a visa because you've done such and such a thing which disqualifies you from being there. Well, what would happen in that situation? You'd probably have to go to a court of law and there a judge could vindicate you, could say that you are okay, that you're free to be there. We get the sense in this psalm that David was looking ahead to one who would have pure hands and a clean heart. That's the sense that we should get in this psalm. Not that David was talking of himself, but that he was talking of one to come who would have clean hands and a pure heart, who would be perfect in both action and affections, even in his worship. But also as we get to verses 5 and 6 of this psalm, we have some sense that God is involved here. We read, don't we, in verse 5, that The blessing on this person is going to come from the Lord, that their vindication or their righteousness is going to come from God, their saviour. So there's going to be this person who's got clean hands and a pure heart. There's going to be this person who receives blessing from the Lord, who receives vindication from God. So somehow there's one coming who is perfect, who is qualified to stand, and somehow God himself is involved in this. How does this work? How could David be looking to a coming king who would be pure in heart, who would succeed where he himself failed, who would succeed where we ourselves fail, and yet God could be involved? Well, I'm sure we all know where this is going, don't we? And we see a switch in verse 6 from the singular to the plural. It's a little bit obscured in the NIV, but it's there goes from talking about this one to talking about the generation of those who seek him. Kind of echoes the progression that we see in Psalm 1, where there's the man, and then it goes to the congregation of the righteous at the end. Here we go from an individual to a generation of those who seek God's face. David indicates that being able to draw near to God, that being pure in heart, that trusting in God will become true of all who seek the face of God. This will be true of all who seek the face of God. And then we come to verse 7 to 10. Verse 7 to 10. Lift up your heads, you gates. 
Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. We see clearly, verses 7 to 10, who this one of whom the psalm is speaking is. It's the King of glory. And then the question's asked, who is this King of glory? It's the Lord, strong and mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. The one to whom this psalm is pointing is indeed none other than the Lord himself. And of course, this is true in Christ. In Christ, the Lord himself became flesh, became man, became the one who had clean hands and a pure heart. The one who lived a perfect and righteous life, who had those clean hands through his life, who lived in that perfect relationship with God, the Father, who didn't swear falsely or put his trust in idols. He's the one who was obedient to God, even to death, even death on a cross where he paid the price for all of us who do not have clean hands, who do not have pure hearts. And then he rose in victory and ascended into heaven in victory, sending his spirit to give clean hearts to all who trust in him. Jesus is the one who was vindicated, who was declared righteous by God the Father. That's happened at Jesus' baptism, didn't it? We're told he was vindicated by the Spirit as he come up out of the waters. The Spirit descended and said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Again, at his transfiguration, there on the mountain, he was vindicated. It was declared, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. His resurrection from the dead vindicated him as being the one who he said that he was, the one who had paid the price for sin, the one who was without sin, who now had power over even death itself. And his victorious ascension into heaven likewise vindicated him as the victorious son of God. He ascended into heaven 40 days later. After rising from the dead, he ascends into heaven in victory in the way that we see in verses 7 to 10 here as the king of glory. As the conquering king, the king who has won a victory over sin, over Satan, over the grave, death itself. And he leads with him a host. He leads with him that generation of those who seek him. Verse 6. He leads with him a host. Sometimes you might find yourself in a situation where you have no rights to go into a certain place but you're with one who can take you there. Back before Christmas, I visited Oxford and went to look around all the different historical sites there. And I was with a friend of mine who had been a student at Oxford. And so he had a card that meant that we could get into all these different kinds of places that I wouldn't have been allowed to go to if I was there on my own. But because of who I was with, I was able to go in with him and enjoy the sights there. Here we see in Psalm 24 that all that is true of Jesus in the singular from verses 4 and 5, that one who has clean hands and a pure heart, the one who does not trust in the idol or swear by a false God, the one who receives blessing from the Lord and vindication from God 
their saviour. All that's true of Jesus in those verses, in those words, becomes true of us in verse 6. As David says, such is the generation of those who seek him. It comes to us, it reaches us in and through Christ. How? Well, as we seek his face, as we come to Christ, all that is his becomes ours. We have no other hope before God. We have no other way of access but in and through Jesus. And how freeing that is, how wonderful that is, again, that it doesn't depend on us, that we don't have to scrub our hands until we can make them clean. We don't have to try and make our own hearts pure. Yet we can pray with David, create in me a pure heart, and God will do it by his spirit because of what Christ has done. If you doubt your standing in Jesus, if you doubt when you sin and when you fall, if you doubt God's love for you and your acceptance before him, if, like me, when you read verse 4, you feel the weight of your own sin and failure, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, and you think, that is not me, well, we can know that there is one who does have clean hands and a pure heart. And that is true of us in and through Jesus. We can know that our standing before God rests on him and with him. In Christ, we receive blessing from God. We receive vindication from God, our saviour. Because of Christ's work on the cross, God can look at us and declare us righteous. God could look at us and see Christ and vindicate us, tell us that we can go free, that we can come freely into his presence because of Jesus and his victory. This is our justification. This is how we are saved. We are vindicated. We are declared righteous by God because of Jesus. And that is how we are saved. As Paul says in Romans 3, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is the gospel. That is our hope. And Jesus is our justification and he's our sanctification as well. He is, by his spirit, creating a pure heart in us. He is creating a pure heart in us by his spirit. And as we hear, as we heard this morning, he who has started a good work in us will bring it to completion. Because of Christ, we're declared righteous and set free to start living a life in line with the life of flourishing that we hear about in the Sermon on the Mount, that we see here. We're set free to do that, not to earn our standing with God, but because we have right standing with God in and through Christ. This is all brought to us from outside ourselves through Jesus as we seek his face, as we draw close to him. There's a contrast, isn't there, between verse 4, the people who do not trust in an idol, and then verse 6, those who seek your face, those who seek him. This is our hope, that by his grace we have become the people who seek his face, the ones who have faith in him, who are resting in him. I don't want us to get confused at this point and think that it's the quality of our seeking of his face that saves us, that it's the quality of our faith that saves us. No, it's not our faith that saves us, it's the object of our faith that saves us. It's Christ that saves us as we rest in him. 
We don't substitute trying to save ourselves by doing the right thing for trying to save ourselves by believing the right thing or up to a certain standard. No, it's Christ that saves us. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith, Christ who saves us. We come to Christ and we are saved through him, through his victory, through his righteousness, and we can enter the very presence of God as people who do have clean hands and a pure heart, as people who have kept the law in its entirety, despite our sin and failures. We come as people who have kept the law in its entirety because our sins are covered, not counted against us, and we have the righteousness of Christ. And we don't just come as people who are white clean. We come as people who are victorious. We come as people who are victorious. Again, not because of what we've done, but because of what we received in Christ. We come as victors because we come in and through the victory of Christ. There has been a man, a human man, in heaven for 2,000 years. And he is there this very moment And because of his victorious entry into heaven, we will follow after him as we trust in him. I wonder, do you ever think about what you'll hear when the day comes and you enter heaven? Do you think you'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant? Maybe we think that those words are reserved for people like the good Dr. Lloyd-Jones or the great Spurgeon. Maybe we think that... um, some of the godly people in this church that we can think of, they'll hear that. But maybe we're thinking that the best that we can hope for is something along the lines of, well done on sneaking in the back door while no one was looking. I think that's maybe what we think we're going to hear when one day we get to heaven. That's not what it's going to be like. Don't get me wrong, no human in heaven has deserved to be there apart from Jesus Christ when considering their own merits. No one has deserved to be there apart from Jesus when taken on their own merits. But our entry into glory will be a victorious one. Our entry into heaven from the weakest saint to the greatest saint will be one of victory because his victory is our victory. Our sin will have been destroyed and wiped away. No more. Our death will have been defeated The future that we deserved will have gone and his victory will be our victory and we'll walk in there victorious with fully clean hands and a fully pure heart because of what he's done, declared fully righteous by God. We think back to the Exodus, don't we? And the one who at the time of the Passover had the weakest faith was just as saved as the one who had the greatest faith. From the least to the greatest, they all walked through the Red Sea in victory. They all sang that song with Moses, that song of victory. Why? Not because of the strength of their faith, not because of what they did, but because of God's mercy and grace. So it is with us. One day we'll enter into heaven in victory. We're trusting in Christ, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. What hope that offers us in the face of our doubts and our anxieties, and our very real sins and failures. When we think about that sin that we just can't seem to um, stop doing, when we think about those thoughts that we can't just stop thinking, when we think about 
the negativity and the difficulties that we have, our own failures, our weaknesses, when we think about all of these things, we will have a victorious entry into heaven if we're resting in Christ. No matter our sins, if we're trusting in Christ, we have clean hands and a pure heart. Of course, our Christian life is not going to be one of plain sailing and of constant victories, but it is one of a certain final victory. Often, the Christian life looks like the way of the cross. It looks like the way of defeat, doesn't it? How that looked like a defeat as Jesus died on the cross, abandoned by his friends, dying on the cross, and yet, even then, victory was coming. The way of the cross led to the victory of the ascension. And we can be sure of something along the lines of verses 7 to 10 because of what Christ has done. Because he is the one who is strong and mighty, mighty in battle. We have got a victory in him. We have a hope in him. A sure and certain hope because of what he has done. Amen.